Thank you, Jeremy. We are blessed to have Jeremy and uh, all the other leaders, Jen and all the other leaders. Uh, so if you get a chance, pat them on the back. They're doing a great job. Okay, so how many of you know what happened on November 9th, 1989? And no, it wasn't Jeremy's birthday. Anybody remember? Okay, those of you that are old enough to have been cognizant at that age of what was going on in the world, even though you don't remember the date, I'm sure you have vivid images in your mind of that particular day. It was the day that Ber- the Berlin Wall fell. You remember that? You remember seeing the pictures of the, of the crowd standing on top of the, on top of the wall and people taking, I remember I was just reviewing some of the pictures, and you remember the pictures of people with chisels and people with big old hammers and and there was also even one, one bridge that was a crossing that so many people were trying to get across the bridge so fast that the bridge collapsed. Do you remember all that stuff? BBC had a, had a news article uh, where they interviewed some of the people who were there. And they interviewed this guy named Joseph, and he says, I was in Berlin working as a U.S. Army intelligence officer at the time. He said, we heard on TV that some of the border points had opened, and I left my wife and young daughter to see what was going on at Checkpoint Charlie. Arrived, uh, arriving at the checkpoint, there was a large crowd on the western side, and climbing the fence, I could see large numbers of people on the eastern side. And about that time, there was an announcement about East Ger- that the East Germans would be allowed to visit the West, but would require a stamp, which would be issued the following morning. Thinking that the East Germans would obey this order, I went home, also feeling a bit guilty that I'd left my wife and baby at home. And the rest is history. The next morning, he says, I was screening scores of East Germans who had come across over from the GDR, including soldiers who had deserted. And over the next few weeks, he says, the the feeling in the air was electric. It was as if some great force had been let loose, and we thought it was going to change the world. But I think looking back on that, all of us probably, uh, you know, look at that event and, and we realize that freedom was granted that day. But as communism toppled all over the USSR, we've also now in retrospect learned that though freedom was granted that day, learning to live in freedom has been a painful, difficult course. This last week I, I emailed with our, our missionary Todd Rose who is in Saratov, Russia. It's a, it's a former major defense city for Russia and they didn't even allow Westerners in there until about a year or so before Todd went there. He is a pastor in one of the local churches there, one of the only local churches in that major town, and it's a church of about 1,000, and and Todd works with foreign nationals or or foreign exchange students who come in to study in the universities there, international students. So not only is he making a difference there, overseeing church planning, but he's actually getting people from all over the world into his international church that he leads and having a huge, wonderful ministry. But I asked Todd, uh, who you see a picture of there with his young family, he just recently had a little baby on the bottom there, and, uh, and I asked him, you know, what about the journey after the Berlin Wall? What, what's been the journey to learning how to live in freedom in Russia? And he, he emailed this back. He said, having newfound freedoms was tough for a lot of people here. He said, communism kept morality in check by enforcing it. So when that fell, all things Western were necessary. Again, not, not just interesting, but must-haves. 
That included the good with the bad. So he said prostitution exploded and you had a huge backlash of people deciding it was time to live for themselves. For 70 years they had, command, they had been commanded to live for the country and they saw it didn't work. It was just a mirage. Those in power were living much better than they were and when they discovered that, them telling them to make sacrifices for the country made no sense. And he said, so they decided to live for themselves wholeheartedly. That's what freedom meant to him. And he makes this comment. He says, I would say that they're still paying for that right now. There were freedoms that came overnight, sure, but it was too much for many. The old guard's gone. The freedom is here, right? I mean, doesn't it make sense? The Berlin Wall falls and the government becomes less oppressive. All of a sudden, that's a good thing and freedom is here, right? But the wall may have fallen, but the wall in people's hearts takes longer to fall. And it's a little bit like the Israelites that we've been looking at in a number of our stories this summer. They go through this great deliverance from slavery, from oppression for hundreds of years, and, and it comes to this one major event where, where they're, they're leaving and then they're trapped, thinking they're going to be brought back into slavery up against the Red Sea, and God makes a decisive blow for freedom by tearing down the wall of the Red Sea in front of them, allowing them to walk through to freedom on the other side. And yet, even as we watch the Israelites struggle with their faith and with their newfound freedom and all that entailed, we see them, we see them struggling very quickly. We see them facing, facing battles and trials, both internal and external, that they don't know how to deal with and live faith and find freedom in God. And it's really the same way in our journey of faith. You know, the Berlin Wall for many of us comes down when we accept Christ and, and we, He comes in and we sense this great peace and this great freedom. It's an event that really is true. There really is freedom. But then it's easy for us in our faith to foster this naive expectation that just because the wall's down, that there won't be more battles, there won't be more trials, and, and the walls of our heart still need to change. You know, the walk into the freedom, the promised wholeness that Jesus says, is littered with external and internal battles that we all face, with enemies that we all face. And some of these battles are simply assumptions that are imposed on us by the way we, were, by the way we grew up. We grew up in slavery. We grew up in dysfunction. We grew up thinking this way. We don't know any different way, and that's just the way life is. And now we're at this place of freedom, and we don't know how to live differently. You know, for me, one of those areas that I've struggled in my life with is, is this whole area, of, for me, in the whole area of money and finances for my life. I grew up uh, where my parents and both of my grandparents actually were, were pastors, and and they were, uh, you know, they lived barely above the poverty line back in that area. In that area in American history and the church, the, the pastors were paid very little. And, and no matter how well they did their job, you, you just, there was no expectation of very much uproom in an income level if you were a pastor. Add to that the fact that both my grandparents lived through the Great Depression and my dad and mom were born on the t- tail of that. And, and I grew up in this mindset where I, I never really learned how to think about wise investing or, or wise use of risk 
and wise use of money to make more money. We just grew up in the, in the make everything last as long as you can, pinch every penny you can, save yourself into security. And many of you grew up that way as well, but some of you probably grew up different. Some of you probably grew up in homes where maybe there was a little bit more money and maybe people were absent, but if you did good, you got a gift. And every time you did good, you got a gift. And so, so for you it became, when I do good, I get things. I get gifts. And so some of you have grown up and, and that becomes a way of coping. And, and for some of you, that probably has led to getting in trouble financially even, where you, in order to make yourself well and feel good, you go out and buy stuff and, and give yourself stuff that you can't afford and then you end up in debt. And you know the slavery of debt. And while you're free to act, free to do things better, you don't know how to live in that freedom yet. Now, many of you are, are in Financial Peace University right now and, and, and making intentional steps to deal with that. And I don't know the names, I don't know the details, but, but I know that there's a number of them in that class that in just 13 short weeks have made a huge progress and are walking through the class going, I wish I would have been able to think this kind of way about money and find this kind of freedom in the past. But for some of us, it's, it's, not, it's not those things, whether it's money or whether it's the way we relate in relationships, that we would just assume because that's the way we're raised up. Some of us, it's just we battle trust issues. You know, maybe we grew up in a, in a home where you, you, you couldn't trust the consistency of people around you. If you performed well, you got praise, and if you didn't, you were shamed, and you were told how bad you were and you were treated bad, you were manipulated, and you just grew up in that environment. And, and so you have a hard time trusting people. Or maybe, maybe you grew up in an environment where uh, all people were nice, but they just weren't there. So you just learned that you couldn't rely on people because they were going to always be working and you were going to be on your own. How many of you have heard others say or said yourself, I, I have a hard time trusting because and you fill in the blank. Isn't that a common phrase many of us use in our life? And when we face these internal battles, whether it's trust or whether it's the way we just brought, were brought up, the way we think and trying to live free and learn to be whole and learn to be more free, when we face these internal battles, the external battles, we're just like the Israelites a lot of times where a couple days down the road from this great, sea, great Red Sea deliverance, we're facing troubles and all of a sudden we're just, we're just going, this isn't good, I should go back to Egypt, I should go back to the way it was because at least I know that way. And it feels better. It feels safer. And then in the story today that we're going to look at, we see Israel not just facing these internal battles of, of provision and, and trusting God for provision and the, the battles of, of just basic needs. We, we see them facing their first external enemy. And they're called the Amalekites in a battle that they're about to partake in with the, with the Amalekites. And the Amalekites are an interesting story because it's, a, it's one of those things that, that the truth is, uh, this story illustrates the fact that grudges can last centuries. The Amalekites were actually descendants of Esau. And if you go back in biblical history, you know that Isaac bore two sons. They were fraternal twins. One was Esau, he was the oldest, and one was Jacob. Jacob would later be renamed by God as Israel. And we know from the overview of the story that Esau was a person who did not consider God's plan for his life or the position in life that God placed him to be very important. He treated his life and his call and his purpose frivolously. 
So one day he comes back from working in the field and his brother is cooking up a nice big stew and he doesn't want to take the time because he's so hungry to go cook his own stew or go get his own meal. And so he ends up selling what God established as order in his life, his birthright to Jacob for a bowl of stew. Now, let's hope that it was at least a five-star stew and not fair food, right? How many of you were at the fair this last week and ate fair food? Did anybody eat the Krispy Kreme burger? One? I had one person tell me that the Krispy Kreme burger was far worse than a White Castle slider, that it stuck with them for like two days. You know, so let's hope that at least Esau had a, had a five-star meal for selling this thing. But so often in living for the present blessing, the present comfort, we too, like him, tend to sell out our future blessing. We're so much more focused on meeting the need today and we sell out the future blessing and purpose that God has for us. What are the ways that we're tempted to be short-sighted today? How do we sell out our pursuit of God? How do we sell out our our pursuit of a godly family and what it means to be great parents or great kids or, or a great spouse for the temporary comfort today? How do we sell out our future purpose and blessing by the way we spend our money and time today? Jacob received the blessing instead of Esau. And Esau was mad. And there's been enmity between Esau's descendants and Israel's descendants to this day. And we pick that up and we see Israel coming back nearing the promised land. And the Amalekites who had become just like Esau was, they become nomads. They, 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 were, they were marauding raiders. They would, they would wander around and, and, and attack the weak and take their goods, and that's how they made their living, and that's how they lived their life. And we see them doing the same thing to the Israelites as they're beginning to come into the promised land. They're just picking off the stragglers and they're attacking them. And we come to this place called Rephidim where they actually face them in battle in Exodus 17. And it says this, The Amalekites came and attacked the Israelites at Rephidim. And Moses said to Joshua, Choose some of our men and go fight against the Amalekites. And tomorrow I will stand on top of the hill with the staff of God in my hands. So Joshua fought the Amalekites as Moses had ordered. And Moses, Aaron, and Hur went to the top of the hill. And as long as Moses held up his hands, the Israelites were winning. But whenever he lowered his hands, the Amalekites were winning. When Moses' hands grew tired, they took a stone and put it under him, and and he sat on it. And Aaron and and Hur held up his hands, one on one side and one on the other, so that his hands remained steady till sunset. So Joshua overcame the Amalekite army with the sword. And then Moses in verse 15 says, Moses built an altar and called it, The Lord is my banner. And that's the name of God we're going to look at today and ponder. And he said, For hands were lifted up to the throne of the Lord, and the Lord will be at war against the Amalekites from generation to generation. This, this Lord is my banner, it's the word Jehovah Nisi, and it basically means God is my banner. God is the one who will defend me, and God is the one who gives me victory and leads me into victory in my life. You know, and this, this, this image that we're given is actually, I think, one of the easier ones for us to relate to when we talk about the descriptions or the names of God, God being our banner, because banners are still something that connect with us even today in modern day. They've been used for thousands of years as symbols of armies and symbols of nations and, and, uh, and symbols of victory. When somebody wins the battle, they display their, their, their banner in, in the camp of the enemy or on the hill of the enemy. 
We even see this in recent times in, in a picture that was so famous to us of Iwo Jima and Mount Suribachi, of the raising of the flag there. And, and there was a guy named Colonel, uh, Lieutenant Colonel Chandler Johnston. He was the battalion commander of the 28th Marines, and they were the ones who took Mount Suribachi with huge casualties. And when they had taken it, he was still standing down on the bottom of the, of the hill down by the beach, and he, he looked at a man next to him and said, I want you to go find the biggest flag you can possibly find. Just, just do whatever you can to find the biggest flag. It's got to be huge. And he said, it's got to be huge for this reason. He says, it's got to be large enough that the men at the other end of the island can see it because it will lift their spirits also. Something about the morale of a banner that touches our hearts. And banners are important. And doesn't that seem kind of odd to you? Haven't you watched some of those films of war movies like Civil War or some other movie where they're, they're charging up the hill and the whole unit's with them and, and you see the guy with the flag get shot and the flag goes down and then somebody throws their musket down and picks the flag up. Have you ever really thought about that? I'm charging the enemy. I'm going to be in hand-to-hand combat. And the choice is gun with bayonet, or pole with flag. Does does that make sense? It doesn't make any sense to you, does it? It doesn't make any sense to me either. But you see, in the history of warfare, and this this is what it means here for us as well, in the history of warfare, if you could see your flag, if you could see your banner, you knew you were with your friends, and you knew there were people fighting around you, and you knew there was still a chance of victory. If your flag went down and you couldn't see it, you knew you were exposed by yourself and defeat was likely. And this is what God's saying to us. I am your banner. I am the one who leads you in victory. I'm the one who organizes and shows you and makes victory for you. And as God reveals this aspect of his nature and his heart towards us, we see in this story a number of powerful things. The first one, actually, Moses says very explicitly it's himself, and it has to do with the idea of him holding the staff up above his head. There was nothing magical about him holding the staff up. I mean, it's just a piece of wood. That doesn't bring victory, and he's just sitting on a hill holding up a piece of wood. But here's the significance of it and the response of Moses to God's direction. Because holding up his banner shows complete dependence upon God in the midst of the battle rather than taking the battle into his own hands. And it says it in the scripture here. It says, The Lord is my banner, for hands were lifted up to the throne of God, indicating a sign of submission and trust in God and God alone. And the Lord will be at war. Basically, for us, the application will be if we stay in this aligned position with God where we do not take control of our own lives, but we give him absolute control and worship him even in the worst of the battles of our life, that he will be at war against the enemies of our life forever. He will defend us from the enemies of our life forever. The lesson is clear. When we face battles on our own strength, We're going to be bound to inconsistent results and defeat. But when we face it, completely relying upon God and his strength, he will bring victory for us. I mean, really, is raising a stick that important? Is it that powerful in and of itself? No, but God often asks us to do things that don't make sense simply as a point of contact with him. Our faith 
is not faith until we express it in some form of action. And sometimes God asks us to do things like hold up a silly stick as a sign of submission to him. You know, maybe today, maybe the way that looks for some of us is maybe sometimes when we're here in worship, even if you're not comfortable with this, maybe God's going to want you to raise your hand and just say, I am all yours just in worship. I mean, it doesn't make sense. What does it do? Why would that enhance our worship experience? But, but sometimes God may want you to do that. Just say, God, I'm all yours and you are the strength of my life. I have no strength in myself but you. Or maybe, maybe throughout your day and your business decisions, it's, it's taking five minutes, ten minutes here and there just to say, God, I'm not wise enough to make this. I think I am, but I know I'm not. So taking time to listen and say, God, is this really what you want me to do? And just listening, giving him time to speak. Or maybe it's doing something crazy out of the huge lack of your life, giving out of that lack, like, like the story of in 1 Kings 17 of the widow at Zarephath. The context of this is, is Elijah is changing locations and he's instructed to go to this widow at Zarephath to talk with her and ask for help. You see, it's been, they're in the middle of a three-year drought, and and Elijah had been staying by this stream that had dried up, and and this is what it says. It says, sometime later, the brook dried up because there had been no rain, and, and God comes to him and says to him and asks him to do something that, to me, not only seems absurd, but if you look at it on its surface, it even seems offensive for him to ask Elijah to ask this. He says, then the word of the Lord came to him and said, go at once to Zarephath of Sidon and stay there. I have commanded a widow in that place to supply you with food. So he went to Zarephath and when he came to the town gate, a widow was there gathering sticks. He called to her and asked, would you bring me a little water in a jar so I may have a drink? And as she was going to get it, he called after her and said, and and bring me please a piece of bread. And she returns around and says this, As surely as the Lord your God lives, she replied, I don't have any bread, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little oil in a jug. I am gathering a few sticks to take home and make a meal for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. It says God commanded this widow, but she obviously has no idea about it yet. And Elijah has the audacity to go and ask this woman who's desperately poor, ready to die, to give to him. And not only that, but listen to this. Elijah said to her, don't be afraid. Go home and do as you have said. Do as you have said, but first make a small cake of bread for me. First, make it for me. So he adds insult to injury. Not only make some bread, but you give me, you serve me first. You don't serve your child who's hungry. You don't serve yourself who's hungry and ready to die. You serve me first. And then make something for yourself and your son. For this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. The jar of flour will not be used up and the jug of oil will not run dry until the day the Lord gives rain on the land. And so she went away and did as Elijah had told her. So there was food every day for Elijah and for the woman and her family. The Lord telling us he's our banner. He's our defender. He's the one who brings victory to our life. He does that when we acknowledge our weakness, our complete lack. And even from a state of complete lack, we remain obedient to him, as the widow did. We still trust and obey. 
It's these actions that align ourselves with the faith of the one who brings victory. And the question really today is, what banner do you carry? The banner of self? Because if we carry the banner of self, we look at the story of God demanding that she give, and we say God's an offensive God. Or the banner of God. Second, God knows our fickleness and the weakness of our hearts and knows that it'll take pushing the limits of our hearts as we, as we learn to go through this wall and learn what freedom really is, what wholeness really is. It's going it's to take pushing us to make us strong. And it's going to take perseverance on our part. And perseverance is not possible without people around us to help us. We see Moses struggling with his part in this battle his struggle of of being the symbol before the whole army that they could look at and say, we are submitted to God. We are reverencing Him. He is our strength. And he becomes weary. And Aaron and her hold up his arms. You know, how many times in our lives do we become weary in what we feel like God wants us to do? And what we feel like is the right thing to grow in freedom. The right thing to become more whole. The right thing to do as a parent with your family and we, we just become weary and we, we, we can't do it anymore. Or, or the right thing to have a relationship with God and do the right habits of relationship with God which we call spiritual habits or spiritual disciplines and, and we just can't keep them up because the press of life and whatever else in life or we just get tired and we, we can't do them. We need people in our lives who we can be honest with our weakness, honest with our weariness, who will hold us up because when that happens, we will experience greater victory and greater joy. You know, this came home to us in a very real way, Wendy and I, this last week where we, we were reflecting on, on the life of a very dear friend of ours, one of our closest friends who uh, died last week of cancer. Her name was Kim Kopp. And Mike and Kim, when we got to know them, were desperately financially struggling as church planners in Flagstaff, Arizona. And they faced all kinds of financial pressures, and yet in the midst of those financial pressures, they were some of the most generous, giving people I've ever met. And for them, it was generosity and giving, even out of their lack, because they trusted the God who would provide for them the victory, even in their finances and their physical needs. And as we saw them over, over about 10 years they moved from desperately, desperately poor church planners to now he is the minority leader of the Senate in the Colorado State Senate and having great success because they trusted God even in the lack moments of their life. And we saw them, even through that time period, we saw friends come up to him who were very, very close friends. We had guys, people who called them their best friends, stabbed him in the back and not only stabbed him, but twisted the knife when they stabbed him. And for most of us, when that kind of stuff happens to us, we respond to those pains in relationship by saying, I'm not going to trust, I'm going to withdraw, and I'm going to protect myself. But, but as Wendy and I were just thinking, thinking through this last week, trying to write a tribute to, to Kim that she and her, or that her husband and her kids could remember, uh, one of the things that stood out to us was the fact that even in the midst of that, she trusted God to bring faithful friends. And she didn't close herself off. She remained open and saying, God, you are the victor in my relationships. You will bring me safe relationships. And I know you want healthy ones and I'm going to stay open. 
Who are the people in your lives that you trust with your, with your weariness, with your pain, with your weakness, that you're honest with, that you don't hide from, and that you're willing to accept help from, not paybacks, you're just going to accept their help. Third, this is not the first time that God used this wooden staff as a banner. The first time we see God using the staff as a banner of his victory in, in Moses' life, we see Moses as a defeated man. He had gone from the halls of the greatest uh, the greatest pharaoh of the greatest kingdom of the earth as a, an adopted son to being a fugitive in the back desert of the Sinai, wandering around in the wilderness caring for sheep. And one day God appears to him in a very profound way and he goes over and talks to God and God says to him, I am calling you to go back to Egypt, this place that's hunting you. I'm calling you to go back and I'm calling you to lead the people out of their slavery to freedom. And Moses responds like all of us would respond. He responds by just simply saying, I can't do it. I'm not capable. I'm not strong enough to do this. And God says, yeah, you are. I'm going to be with you. And then he says, well, even if I went back, who's going to listen to me? I mean, Pharaoh won't listen to me. Even The Israelites won't even listen to me. How would Pharaoh listen to me? I, I, they aren't going to come pay attention to me when I say, I'm coming to lead you. And God talks to him and says, okay, just throw the staff down on the ground. And the staff turns to a snake. And, and he says, now pick it up. And he picks it up by the tail and it turns back to a, back to a staff. And, and God says, this is just a sign to you that I will be with you, that I am the God who's going to fight for you, that I am your banner who will defend you. And we see Moses taking that staff through the rest of his life and he meets the elders and he throws it down. And, and you know, can you imagine being there? Uh, he's in front of a bunch of people and, and he's throwing it down. And he's going, man, is this going to turn to a snake or is it just going to go clink, clink, clink on the, on the ground, you know? I mean, can you imagine those being there at those moments and, and God repeatedly showing him that I'm going to provide the power, even the miraculous power, for you to accomplish your purpose. And see... So often in our own lives, when God's establishing himself as the banner to us, as the one who leads us to victory, he starts internally and gives us these things that we can hold on to, that we have these experiences of his victory in our life, and, and he wants us to share those with others because personal victories often become public victories. This simple staff, something that was symbolic, not just symbolic, but real, in terms of God showing himself to Moses, becomes not only this personal comfort to Moses, but it becomes this personal comfort to an entire nation. What are the personal victories that God's done in your life that you sometimes forget and don't remember to tell the stories of that maybe God wants you to tell your kids and tell your friends and tell your small group, tell your neighbors so that your victories can become signs of God's victory in their life as well. And finally, to what extent do we expect God to bring victory in our lives? You know, God's revealing himself to Israel at a really pivotal time here. I mean, they've been wandering for, for weeks and months in the desert and getting very discouraged. And this is their first battle. This is the first time they face an enemy. 
And God comes to him to teach him a lesson because just like the Israelites, the longer we face these trials, the longer we face these battles, our tendency so often is to grumble and say, let's go back to the past. Or, or at the very least, our tendency is to lower our expectations of what God will do in victory. To say, okay, you know, God, you can do this much. Hopefully my life will be just a little bit better than my neighbor's. But we, we, we struggle with this tension between the promise and where we actually live today. And we, we either resolve that by staying in that tension or we resolve it by lowering our expectations. And the story of the Bible, which is good, would take too long to, to, uh, to illustrate fully, is this, this theme of God as our banner, as our victor, is carried very clearly out throughout the Old and all the way into the New Testament to the point where, where it very clearly points back to the Old Testament banners and says Jesus on the cross and dying for us is our banner and Jesus is the one that provides the ultimate protection and victory in both life and in death. And we see Paul commenting on this idea of Jesus as our victor at the end of a section where he's just spent two or three chapters talking about how he does things, how he faces battles all the time, and how he doesn't do what he wants to do. And, and he's just struggling. And then, and then he, he makes this conclusion statement about the battles we face in our journey to freedom. I mean, Christ has set us free, but we're still on that journey to discover what it looks like to live in that. And he says this in Romans 8, 37, but in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. How do you see the victory that God wants to bring in your life? Do you see it as just so-so, just getting by, hopefully a little better than the people next to you who don't know Jesus? Or, or is it overwhelming? Is it amazing? Is it awe-inspiring? It goes on the next verse to say, For I am convinced. Don't you want to live life convinced? Don't you want to live life from that level of confidence? That neither death, in other words, I don't have to worry about living in a fallen world where death is still a reality and where aging and decline is still a reality because the victory is taken care of. That neither death nor life, all the cares of finances, all the cares of will we fulfill the purpose and will our life be meaningful or, or, growing, or will we be able to grow out of the dysfunction of our past and the sinfulness and the damage of that, all the cares surrounding that. Can we be free of the sins that we so desperately abhor but can't seem to get over like we want? And it says God's taking care of that. Not just a little bit, but overwhelmingly. So neither death nor life nor angels or principalities, there's no need to be afraid of spiritual warfare. Sometimes we live afraid of spiritual warfare. There's no need to be afraid of that, nor things present. God has a plan for me today to walk through whatever rises up today and is occurring right now in my life. His plan is to be the banner of victory over me and lead me through that to not just victory, overwhelming victory, nor things to come. And we can relax and trust and we can let go of worry of the future, nor powers. You know, we face an interesting time, but God says he's going to bring overwhelming victory into our lives no matter what our government rulers do, whether they fix the economy or break the economy, whatever happens whether our business leaders, whatever they do, he is over the powers and he is set as our banner and wants to bring in our lives over 
overwhelming victory. And then he throws in the kitchen sink just to make sure everything's covered. Nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. Victory over our sin is secure. Victory over our circumstances is already secure in Christ. Victory over fulfilling the purpose and plan he has for us, our lives and leaving a meaningful impact because of our life is already secure. All those things are secure. All we need to do is to simply recognize him as the only one who can bring victory and stay aligned to that in our life. If you really believed that overwhelming victory was possible, how different would your thoughts be about what you're going through right now? Not just victory, not just getting through. If you believed overwhelming victory was what God wanted to bring, how different would your thoughts be right now? How different would you feel? How different would your emotions be in what you're facing right now? If you believed and trusted that God wanted to be your overwhelming victory, how different would your actions be now if you knew that God was wanting to bring overwhelming victory in your life? Is God your banner, your focal point, your rally point, your leader to victory? Is your first thought when you face a battle, face a struggle, face an internal or external battle, is your first thought to look to Jesus, your banner, and say, God, how are you going to bring victory, overwhelming victory in this? Or is your first thought to to back up and take control and, and deal with this and make all the decisions yourself? The banner of love that Christ raises over us frees us and assures us that freedom's realization will happen. We've not only been set free, we will realize the promise of freedom. And he is going to teach us to follow that in sacrificial love. Today we're going to celebrate communion. And if the worship team would like to come, the banner, Jesus is saying to us, will you trust the work I did for you? Will you be convinced of my love? Will you trust the victory that I accomplished for you on the cross? Because that's where he accomplished it. That's the ultimate banner of victory. That's the ultimate symbol that he is overwhelmingly victorious, is the cross. And as we take out the bread, and, and you have to think about it for a second. I mean, if he's the banner of victory, he's saying to us, will you look upon my body and see that I battled for you? I fought for you already. I have scars that I took for you. And not only did I have scars that I took for you, but I came to you in human flesh as my promise that I would walk with you to realize the freedom. That's what he's saying. Would you just take the bread and just thank him for that? And as we look at the the cup representing his blood, he's saying to us, will you trust my forgiveness? Will you trust that my definition of sin and goodness is right? Will you trust me that, that as I tell you that this will bring happiness, pleasure, and prosperity, that being obedient to these things will do that? Will you, will you trust my definition or will you trust your banner and your definition of that more? Will you trust that my forgiveness has taken away all shame and guilt of your past? and that I'm inviting you to live condemnation-free. 
to trust me to lead you into all the freedom and fullness. Would you take that and just thank Jesus for that freedom? Thank you, God, for raising your banner over us. Thank you that you declare victory, that you are the victor, and you declare victory victory over our life, that you are the one who defends us, that we need not worry, that we need not have any cares, because you love us enough to declare yourself our personal banner, our corporate banner, our family's banner, that you will bring victory in all areas of our life. Lord, we recognize that, and we we humbly declare our weakness before you and our need for you to control every aspect of our life. In Jesus' name, amen.